Soccer, written and narrated by Mark Lingane. Copyright 2014. Episode 14. I went back to my office. I took Angelina's file from my pocket, flipped it open, and slipped the contents onto the desk. The first document was a photograph, good quality in a plastic bag, of Hugh Jorgen. That was unexpected. He was singing out his, at the time, still beating heart. He had no idea what was coming. That was the thing with death. You rarely knew it was coming until the reaper tapped you on the shoulder. I'd lived a life of watcher breathing down my neck, holding out against the inevitable final curtain. Now I felt like it had all been to meet Laura Mallory. Even for the briefest of moments, it was worth the wait. In the photograph, a crowd of excitable ladies was standing at the base of the stage, staring adoringly up at Jorgen. The microphone stand was clearer in this shot. It was indeed an old piece of wood semi-disguised by the cable wrapping around it. It was a long pole about six inches wide, maybe less. The detail wasn't that great in the grain. I wondered what was special about the photograph for it to be included in the file. Angelina told me she hadn't met Jorgen. She hadn't met him. That's what she said. I examined the photograph more closely. I didn't recognize anyone in the band or in the crowd. I reached into my desk drawer and pulled out a magnifying glass. I went over each person in the crowd. There, at the back, was a pretty young lady with her hair tied back, looking tense, afraid, and staring straight at Mr. Jorgen. She may not have met him face to face, but she sure knew about him. There were more pictures of a bedroom, a young girl's bedroom, possibly a teenager's. It had been trashed. There were police tags over everything in the photograph. There were a couple of close-ups of a small bed with dark patches. The notes on the rear of the picture stated that it was blood. It was dated a decade ago. I picked up a photograph of a second bedroom with a double bed this time but showing the same mayhem, possibly a parent's bedroom full of memories. A picture of the inside of a closet showed a collection of weapons bound together by thick leather straps. The next shot had them spread out on the floor. The notes listed matchlock muskets, custom tires, model 85 revolvers, a mock-top Remington 870 and a gas-operated automatic crossbow. There were also knives, medieval and ancient. The weapons were a collector's dreams, but all very illegal after the 39th Senate ruling. Good stuff to have around the house with a teenage girl. I picked up a note that said, missing, wooden pole, rude. It was also dated 10 years ago. Angelina had lost her parents at the same time she was attacked. Someone had gone in and massacred her family and taken the route. Then she had either fended for herself through the teenage years or someone had looked after her, watched out for her. I checked my watch. An hour had flown past. I put everything back in the file and stashed it in the backup secret alcove above my closet. Then it occurred to me that if I hid it and the trash men found it, they might consider it important. I went for the double bluff and hid it in the filing cabinet in plain sight under M for miscellaneous or so possibly misdirection. Time to make my way back to the government records office. 
Xerography lady gave me a short list comprising four city addresses and one other document, handwritten I noticed. They were all temptations of the flesh, a couple of brothels, a bar, and all-you-can-eatery. One of particular interest was, ironically, an old church with an undisclosed address. That many was a piece of land, his only one not within the city boundaries, but on the wastelands to the east. You'd need to be a brave parishioner to venture out there. I put it on my to-do list at the bottom, under cleaning behind the refrigerator. I pocketed the list and made my way out to the first address. It was a skin joint out to the north, probably servicing politicians and other respectable notaries. It was on a green, leafy street, open wide for any bribes that came its way. Nestled between a jewelry shop catching the guilt money from philanderers and their forgotten wives, and a wine bar made of marble and glass, was a bundle of bricks and twisted metal, an imploded building feeling unworthy of its location and extracted itself from view. I knocked on the doors of the suffering businesses on either side. A young lady in the jewels said it was like the place had died. They were gonna be hit hard by the sudden lack of custom. She told me it happened two nights ago. I put that in the same time frame as Templeton 667. There were rumors, the young lady said, that it had been full of skinny blonde hookers that they seemed to employ exclusively, but there had been no evidence that they were missed. No one grieving had come by, only the businessmen and politicians had paused momentarily before finding interests elsewhere and striding into new stomping grounds. I headed out to the western districts to the bar next on my list. It was roughneck country, where the haulers brought in banned contraband from the more free-thinking parts of the world. Big meat-headed thugs who maximized everything for greed. In the food chain of depravity, they were at the fat middle management, ripping off the small fry and lying to the top to keep profits being made. It was a surprise, but not a total one, to see the building had been flattened. It looked like it had been an old church at one point. Now it was just a pile of bricks. The diesel station next to it looked deserted. No one was stopping. No one was buying fuel. I knocked on the door of the house attached to the diesel stop and eventually a hungover looking guy opened the door. He confirmed that the place next door had collapsed in on itself two nights ago. He had been on duty when it had happened. He said there had been an influx of the skinny blonde hookers they got in to entertain people. Then not long after midnight, the whole thing had come down like the life had been sucked out of it. The third address was in the South Basin. A fast food joint had been built on the side of an old graveyard where the first settlers had been buried and sold food so cheaply it had to be bad. The place was gone. Another pile of rubble just like the others. Everything around it was untouched. Precision implosion. The block was big. It had been a restaurant bigger than most. At the rear was a lot of twisted metal, the ruins of a large car yard. The truck tires were heavy on the ground. There was also a lot of blood. I asked the neighbors when the building had come down. Two nights ago. No one seemed upset about it. They whispered their concern about the kind of meat that was served. Trucks came in, but not from the slaughterhouse. One neighbor swore she'd heard quiet cries once when she was walking her dog past one of the trucks and the doors was open. There were human cries, she said. 
One old neighbor told me the landlord had never been brought to trial over it. It was a disgrace, she said. I challenged him about it one day when I was a young girl. I threw tomatoes at him. She said she had seen him five decades later and he still looked the same. Templeton 667 was next on the list, but I knew the story there. That only left one other skin joint in the Northwest. I knew what I'd find there. You'd have to be three parts Republican not to see the connection. Sure enough, it was another old place that had been operating as cover for the oldest profession for longer than any of their neighbors could remember. Old people told me their grandparents had said the same thing, skinny blonde things, all looking the same. For centuries, the good men of the city had been sucked into a well of deceit which succeeded in turning men with golden hearts into politicians who wanted little else than to line their own pockets and hide the evidence, and then commit suicide when they were found out, leaving their grieving families with nothing more than half-baked retirement benefit and a bucket load of foul-tasting lies. Folks understood it, they even played along when it came to the election time, but they didn't like it, so they turned the other way and watched the descent of society over their shoulders while tending to their marigolds. Five places in the city, all nothing but rubble. I went back to the lovely lady at the government office. There were lease dates, they all expired at the same time. Tomorrow night. Phoenix was checking out. I went back to my office. It occurred to me that I'd completed a circuit of the metropolis. I grabbed my old street directory, ripped out the pages and stuck them together to make one large map of the city. I thumbtacked it to the wall and marked out the five demolished buildings. I stood back. It was easy to see what was going on. Five points in a ring, just like you might find on a body of a dead skinny blonde thing. I drew lines connecting the five points. The lines intersected on the Grand Hilltop Church. For the first time, I felt the clogs clicking into place. I checked my watch and gave the tank a call. The desk sergeant said Lara had gone home for the day. She'd only been in for an hour, doing paperwork and then left citing illness. That meant I could go see her again. I got the kink out of my head and thought about all the ways I could say sorry. In a world where Lara couldn't do any worse than me and I could never do any better than her, maybe it kind of balanced out. Maybe there was a possibility of a future where we could spend more time together. If she didn't set herself on fire when I suggested it, I'd take it as a good sign. It had been a good day. Progress with clues, resolution of mind, and a good lunch all combined to lift me. Feeling a spring in my step, I called a 35 to Fernando Drive. The weariness of the days fell away and a smile cracked its way across my face. I rapped on her door. My eyes flicked over to the pot with the hidden key and I briefly entertained the idea of using it, but she had said it was for friends and I didn't know if I currently qualified as one. Maybe within a few minutes that would change. A minute rolled past and I gave the door another knock. Then another minute rolled by. I turned away, feeling deflated. The door unlocked behind me. I span round with a heart full of hope. Mina was standing at the door wearing a robe she hadn't had the inclination to fasten. She curled her finger and beckoned me in. I followed hesitantly. 
She moved, almost floating over the cool tiles until she was in the middle of the living room. She spun around. Her wrap swung out, revealing parts of her that looked flushed. No secrets on her. She looked down at her topple lack of inside. She clenched together the edges of her wrap, partially concealing her body. Come on, stud. You've seen more playing in the berry patch. She stood tall with her head high. Her injury was still patched, but she was carrying her pain like a radio. When life gives you melons, wear a low-cut top. What do you want? Laura was getting info. Ah, oh, dear Laura, always thinking of others. It's such an attractive quality. But then that's her. Her all pretty and pure and so much fun. Her tone was different. She was no longer selling her intent. Her shop was closed. She wandered over to the master bedroom and pushed open the door. She reached into the room and picked up a small envelope from the dresser just inside. She sniffed it and smiled. She leaned against the door jamb and held the letter out casually. I stepped closer and she brought her arm into her side, causing me to move in closer. With both of us standing in the doorway to the bedroom, she released a grip on the envelope. She bit her bottom lip. She let her wrap fall open again and stepped in close and I could feel the heat of her body. Hey big boy, I'd invite you in, but the bed's already taken. She looked back over her shoulder. The identity had me confused for a moment, but then a sick feeling stole into my stomach. I felt myself break out into a cold sweat as realization dawned. She had a few drinks and finally let her barriers down. Meaner purred. She laughed as the color drained from my face. Oh, look at you. You shouldn't keep all those emotions trapped inside. Visions of the two of them wrapped around each other socked me in the stomach. I could feel an icy grip in my chest, one from long ago that I promised myself I'd forget. Of course, I could always change my mind, she said. We could whip up a little party, just the three of us. We'd all get to know each other. Intimately. My head spun and I staggered back. I pushed her away and turned to leave. No. Honey, I've seen everything under the moon and heard every word there is. Nothing can surprise or offend me except being declined. Her face turned sour and her beauty dropped away. All I could see was someone who had lived a life of deceit and manipulation, and now she had lured away the most precious person in the world to me. Love wasn't a competition, but I'd lost. I staggered down Fernando Drive, barely aware of the 35 that nearly ran me down. Only the blast of its horn and the diesel fumes almost on top of me woke me from my misanthropic walk. All I could see were images of Mina and Laura. Everything was dark. I was surrounded by callous forest of thorny recollections. Every memory hurt. Every breath hurt. A 35 running over me would have been salvation. I sat on the top story of the bus with the envelope in my hand. A tear rolled down my face onto the paper. I wiped my eye and watched the world drag by. We were a good hundred feet up. I could jump. Knowing my luck on the way down, flight would reveal itself as a secret power.
There weren't too many people I could call a friend or even talk to, but I found myself pushing through the doorway into Angelina's little shop. The bell tingled its little sad melody, but it was the only sad thing about the place. It had been redecorated. The dark colors were gone and bright drapes hung around the room. The cheap knockoff relics had been removed and replaced by rows of flowers, herbs, and new age books. I went back outside to check I was in the right place. I was. I pushed open the door again and there stood Angelina in her new outfit. Her dark hair was tied back and she was wearing dark glasses. A long leather coat hung down to her knees. That said one word to me. Chafe. She whipped back her coat and, for the first time, exposed no skin. She wore dark leather pants and a dark shirt loosely buttoned up, showing enough to distract what the rest of her was carrying. She had a huge gun strapped to each thigh, slung low, so she could pull them out quickly. She also had a sword strapped to her back, plus a sword and weaponry hanging off a belt. Expecting trouble, I said. I was thinking about what you said about the people looking for me. She replied. She gave me a sly smile. Maybe I am. I'm sure you'll blend in. She whipped out the oversized weapons and spun them around, obviously well versed in their waiting execution. If the mech warriors had found them, they would have exploded with the excitement of such provocative firearms. She jumped around the room, aiming at various plants and pretending to shoot. How did you keep the weapons? We hit them. She beamed with inner achievement. Where? On the moon? Maybe. I'll show you later if you're nice to me. A fan in the center of the ceiling was slowly ticking around with barely a sound other than the occasional whip of wicker through the pollinated air. The breeze rolled down gently and caressed the colorful petals. Her outfit was in stark contrast to her new shop, but then maybe that was Angelina. An enigma wrapped up in a conundrum that didn't even know any riddles to break the tension. She holstered her firearms, folded her arms and glared at me. My mind drifted away, thinking back to Mina, her appearance as nature intended and the things she had said. The thoughts made me feel numb and I had difficulty pulling my mind back into focus. Why the change? I said eventually. I've been hiding for too long. It's time to fight back. I looked around the room again. With flowers and herbs. You'd be amazed at the damage you can do with a well-placed chrysanthemum bomb. She cast a careful eye over me. You look like you could use something uplifting. You've been taking another beating on the inside. I'm not talking about it. I waved the address at her. We've got places to go. And people to shoot? I shrugged. If you want. Her face lit up. I hoped her enthusiasm for wanton destruction would rub off on me. At the moment, I was tied to the bottom of a well with the water rising up above my chin. The questions of the morning were sitting on the forefront of my mind, ticking away like an unexploded bomb. The pollen was getting to me. My throat constricted under the allergies. I coughed. Can I have a drink? She poured a glass of water, looking impatient. I took a sip and stared at her. You said you lost your parents. I croaked. Yeah, when I was a baby. I took another sip. Who looked after you? I think I grew up in an orphanage until I could escape. You think? Do you remember which one? 
Not really, it was all so dull and uninspiring All those sad faces staring without hope The futility of an empty life pounding them into submission The need, the hunger, the washed out eyes of disillusionment And the children weren't much better When did the vampire attack you? She paused before answering. An odd expression crossed her face, the struggle of recollection, not painful but difficult, as if too distant. About a year ago, but I remembered like it was yesterday. The lights, the evil face, beautiful, then animal, the pain. Intensity seemed to set into her like she was burning from the inside. I could only guess what it was like for her. She'd locked everything away in her memory and all she had been left with was the pain which sat within her without reason or release. You sure you've never seen Jorgen? The change caught her off guard. I haven't met him at all, I promise. I said, seen. Do we have to stand around with the questions all day? They're bad guys to shoot, let's go! She nearly dragged me out of the shop in her enthusiasm for retribution. She locked the door and turned to face me. Where did you park? I don't have a car. Why not? Time is of the essence. Nothing important should ever be rushed. That's all fine and dandy, but you're not the one in the fancy footwear. She lifted the cuffs of her leather trousers and revealed a set of black studded stiletto boots. Sometimes the right words just aren't there and all you can do is look disappointed. Surely you don't expect me to wear flat shoes? What kind of message would that send? Killing vampires requires, I assure you, that you look fabulous. We'll take a 35. She looked down the street to the distant bus stop. No, we'll take a taxi. You can sit in the front and do all the stupid talk thing with the smelly driver. Hitching a dim box was straightforward. The first one came to a screeching halt the minute she aimed her twin guns at the hapless driver. We passed through the low-life areas on the way to the broker's address. The depressing side of destitute people who'd sold everything and now were selling themselves darkened my already pensive mood. They lined the streets and alleyways but slid away as we rolled past. I watched them from within the sanctity of the metal cocoon of the taxi. The thin glass barrier didn't make it less real and I could feel the desperation begin to seep into me. The driver pulled over near the address and made haste with his overcharged fare, leaving us to traverse the final hundred yards on foot. Angelina bounced along with her fingers itching and her palms scratching close to her weapons.